could use a buddy. Don't you want a pal? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Girl, the way I see it, your daddy should be leaving and you should stick around and kill him. What? Nothing. Revenge is not as fun. And believe me, it is fun if you're not there to claim the scalp. And I can be so... Gross. Well, Creepy. What? Ugly. Hey. Disgusting. Well, sure, but more importantly, the point is I can help. I'm in your corner. I don't want you in my corner. And I can be the worst. No, the best. No, the worst. We can be a team like the world has never seen, but you've got to free me first. So, Lydia. Don't off yourself, just stop yourself. I can help you stay in the game. Together we'll exterminate, assassinate. No. The finer points can wait, but first you gotta say my name. I don't know your name. Well, I can't say it. How about a game of charades? Yes, let's play it. Two words. Okay. Second word. Right. Drink? No. Beverage? No. Wine? No. Juice? Yes. Okay, first word. Okay. Bug? No. Ant? Close, but no. Beetle? Yes. Beetlejuice? Wow, I'm impressed. And all you gotta do is say my name three times. Three times in a row it must be spoken Unbroken. Ready? Yeah. Okay, go. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, April 28th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His play, God Shows Up, begins performances, began performances actually, April 6th at the Actors Temple on 47th. With an opening night of May 13th, his columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi, good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Also, Michael has a, a Q&A session, another one. The last one was uh, Santino Fontana, I think it was. with, yes. uh, And this one is with Celia Keenan-Bolger, one of our favorite scouts. Uh, <laughs> she's a Girl yes. Scout. She's an Eagle Scout. <laughs> she is. Yeah. Um, coming I up agree. on uh, Friday, May 10th, from 5.30 to 6.45 at Ripley Greer Studios. Uh, in order to get in, you will have to email Michael to see if there are seats left, and uh, he will give you the details about that. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Yes, just email Michael at BroadwayStars.com. Excellent. I know that email address. <laughs> so uh, a little cleanup. It's kind of been a week of uh, my misspeaking. So last week, <laughs> last week, uh, I talked about the uh, Hades Town um, cast recordings, and I attributed it to a production in Toronto. And of course, I have made this script before. It wasn't in Toronto; it was at the Citadel Theatre in Edmonton, Alberta, and. That was not the live recording. The live recording was actually from New York Theatre Workshop, and so we sorted all that out. Sorry about that. Uh, Peter, uh, Matt Tamanini and I will need your help on something. Uh, is it Felicia or Felicia Rashad? Felicia, just the way my last name is pronounced. You know, and I thought I thought so too, but I wasn't 100% sure, and I've been making so many mistakes that I wanted to confirm that. What was your Felicia Rashad story again? 
Um, it was uh, the mid eighties and, uh, I was at a, a party where the line to the bar was just so incredibly long. And, um, so I just turned to the person standing next to me and said, look, it's going to be a while. We might as well talk, you know? I mean, so, uh, uh, what's your name? And she imperiously said, Felicia. And I said, my God, that's my name. And she said, that's your first name. I said, no, in fact, it's my last name. I said, um, so tell me about you. What do you do? She said, I'm an actress. And I said, oh, really? Have I ever seen you in anything? She said, The Cosby Show? See, I mean, I don't see any TV, you know? So, And then the look on her face was, oh, my God, there's an American who doesn't know me. Maybe there's two. Maybe there's four. Maybe there's eight. Maybe there's a lot of people who don't know me. And she really panicked. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, see, now, if this were after she had done Into the Woods, I would have known who she ah. was. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so. I don't think she leads with The Cosby Show anymore. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. No, and I, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I found that when there are people who are famous, you know, have become famous for TV and film, if they started in the theater and if you go up to them and you compliment them on something they did, on, you know, on stage, they light up mm. because it's, you know, it's usually not what they hear. Well, to be fair, she was in The Wiz originally, but she didn't have that last name because she right. had uh, right. Married to Mad Rashad yet? So, yeah. So, so Michael, are you going to give that uh, that advice to Celia Keenan Bolger in case she leaves us for the left coast? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so Always be... lead with your theater credits. You know. <laughs> well, she. Ha- I mean, listen. She. Uh, yeah, she got yeah. plenty of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's uh, she's a drama desk nominee uh, this year for To Kill a Mockingbird. She, that just came out. She's a winner for her performance as Laura Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie, for which she won the Dorothy Loudon Award, and also as a member of the ensemble of the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And uh, she was also a Theater World Award winner for Spelling Bee, and she's a three-time Tony Award nominee already not counting what may happen this week for for uh to kill a mockingbird so and she's what may happen on the night of the awards too oh yeah well yes absolutely <laughs> uh so this is uh you know how sky masterson says it's it's his time of day you know that <laughs> 3 a.m type of thing this is our time of year when uh when we are really out there uh, seeing shows every night and anticipating uh, what's going to happen this week in the Tony Awards. But before we get into that, I'm sure we will talk about that next week. Uh, Michael and Peter got over to City Center to see Lady in the Dark. Uh, it's part of Master Voices, is it? Right. Yes. It's part no, of Master Voices. Not a non-course thing. It's a Master Voices thing. So, uh, Peter, why don't you just get us started on Lady in the Dark? Well, what's really fascinating about Lady in the Dark, uh, it's a 1941 musical. And what must it have been like in 1941 when people are enjoying happy-go-lucky musicals? And here's a really uh, sincere and uh, severe one, really, uh, because it deals with a woman's problems uh, while she's running a magazine called Allure. Um, <clears throat> she has personal problems because she's sleeping um, with the publisher, and yet she's attracted to a young man who comes into the office. And um, she has troubles with the magazine. Uh, a lot of people poo-poo the idea that she has such a big problem deciding between two covers, which should be on the stands next month. But frankly, um, 
when I was editor in chief of magazine, I remember all the consternation there was in terms of uh, what cover should we use? No, 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 that one's better. No, 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 that one's better. So I really um, empathize with her problem, and I can understand if the general public was never had to make this decision doesn't, but uh, but people do make light of that fact. But anyway, she decides to go to a psychiatrist, um, who by the way was played by Amy Irving, which was kind of interesting because it originally, of course, was played by a man, and here it was played by a woman, and um, she's reluctant to go, very reluctant to go, um, and in fact uh, walks out more than once um, during sessions because she really uh, gets frustrated that either she isn't getting anywhere or that she's revealing too much. That's uh, certainly an issue too. So um, her uh, dream sequences uh, come up, and uh, that's where the music comes in. Ethan Morden said it best in one of his books when he says, this is a musical where the book scenes and the musical scenes take turns. So uh, it's not a situation where you have a person burst into the song the way they do in musicals usually. It really is a play with music, or as Ted Chapin once said, a play with musical. And that's kind of a better way of putting it. Um, ironically enough, when I wrote about it for Masterworks Broadway, um, <laughs> they sent back the article correcting that, saying, no, uh, no, you mean a play with music. No, I mean a play with musical. That's what he said. Because, indeed, they do play like musical sequences, and they do seem to be mini musicals of their own. So um, so you get those dreams, and um, uh, many interesting things come out during those dreams, but also during the sessions where there's dialogue. Now, one of my favorite properties in the world is Hobson's choice because it's a, a show where we find out that a man needs a woman and a woman needs a man to help each other advance in the world and essentially lady in the dark comes to that conclusion as well so um so it does work out reasonably happily and um and also her love life gets a little bit solved it may not be solved to the nth degree but it gets a little bit solved so um What's wonderful, too, of course, is we had our top-notch talents of the day working on it. Moss Hart wrote the book, and, of course, he had a lot to do with psychiatry in his own life. He, he was um, an inveterate uh, attendee. Um, the music by Kurt Weill, who it's just always so amazing to me when you listen to the German Kurt Weill material and then you hear the American Kurt Weill material. He really adapted himself to what American audiences really needed to hear. And... It's extraordinary to hear this this music, uh, especially under Ted Sperling's direction with a full orchestra. But more to the point, uh, we always talk about the fact that Richard Rogers wrote wrong notes, and wrong is in quotation marks, because when we say wrong notes, what we mean is notes that really tickle our fancy, notes that we don't see coming. And uh, certainly Kurt Weill did that too, and he deserves more credit for doing that as well. There's a delicious one in the Girl of the Moment song that I'm, I'm, I'm always crazy for. So um, so we had that, and then we had Ira Gershwin, who essentially was coming out of retirement because he was still uh, mourning the death of his brother, George, uh, four years earlier, and um, hadn't worked, and they didn't even think that he would uh, appreciate the idea of being asked, but they asked him anyway, and the, uh, the property intrigued him so much. So there are a lot of very, very funny um, lyrics and incisive lyrics as well. So here we are, and who do we have as um, Liza Elliott, the editor of Allure magazine, but Victoria Clark. You know, it was so interesting in intermission, people were saying to me, well, and before and after the show, more than at intermission, but... <clears throat> You know, well, you know, you need someone more glamorous, um, you know, to play uh, Liza Elliott. No, it was originally played by Gertrude Lawrence, and um, she certainly had glamour, so we're told. I, I didn't see her. But anyway, um, 
yeah, but you know, uh, I I have found that editors of uh, fashion magazine. Uh, I've I've, been, I've known a lot of editors of magazines in my time because I've worked at plenty of them. Uh, you know, they're not that glamorous. So I thought she was very well cast. I thought she did a very nice job of uh, assuming the role and showing the insecurities, and uh, doing a very nice job with the two numbers that she, uh, the show is most famous for. That is the saga of Jenny, as well as my ship, and uh, beautifully done by both of those. I thought that was really quite terrific. So um, I enjoyed her immeasurably and uh, found that um, that in the book scenes, she was very, very touching. I, I really felt for her that I really wanted her to solve these problems, that she would really have a wonderful um, life. I, I wished her well. I was rooting for her. And, you know, I'm not sure that that happens all the time. Now, of course, 25 years ago, almost to the day, almost to the day, we had this... Um, a, a concert airing at um, uh, the same theater, City Center, when um, uh, Encores did it as its third ever show. They started with Fiorello, they did Allegro, and then they did Lady in the Dark. Christine Ebersole did it. So um, revisiting it was really quite a thrill because I always ask people if there were a time machine, what would you go back and see? And Follies and Merman and Gypsy and Streisand and Funny Girl and Showboat and West Side Story come up a lot. But so does Lady in the Dark, and I hope everybody got to see this, those who always say, oh, I'd go back and see Lady in the Dark. I know some of it has to do with Gertrude Lawrence, and I understand that. And I also understand why the run of the show, 467 performances, which was an incredibly long run in those days, and I'll agree that some of this had to do with Gertrude Lawrence, but the fact that theatergoers would go and see this maverick show where it was unconventionally structured where the musical numbers were concerned, where it was a serious subject, where it was very doleful for much of the night, really speaks extraordinarily well, extraordinarily well, of uh, the theatergoers at the time that they were able to um, roll with the punches. And there were punches that were delivered. Um, I very much liked Ashley Park as um, Eliza's secretary. I thought Montego Glover was really good as Maggie Grant. Um, uh, and um, David Pitt, who had the famous role that um, made Danny Kay a star singing Tchaikovsky. I always felt the number was entirely irrelevant. But um, And it's funny, there's a funny rhyme with the word irrelevant, by the way, um, in the score. So, um, But I thought that, um, that uh, he, he did uh, very, very well. And uh, the character is maybe the first... Um, gay character in musical theater that really seemed um, as if he were um, homosexual. In fact, a line was dropped that was even um, a little incendiary. One of my readers, oh, in fact, it was Tony Janicki, uh, the famous trivia expert, uh, told me that there was a line that was dropped that um, really did point out the fact that uh, he was uh, gay, but it was a, a slur, um, uh, comparatively speaking. It was also fun to see Christopher Invar as Charlie Johnson, who smiled a lot. I mean, Christopher Invar, who um, originally um, was known for Floyd Collins, though I also saw him play the Harry Guardino role in Anyone Can Whistle in a small production way back when, uh, seldom gets the chance to smile. <laughs> it was so good to see him do it. Um, mention must be made of the fact that there was uh, a cast of 120 singers sitting on bleachers. Uh, it's the Orchestra of St. Luke's, and um, these people added, and to hear all those voices, was really, really quite wonderful, um, accenting here and there. So um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people came out saying, what was that? What did I just see? Oh, my God. That wasn't nearly as good as I thought it was going to be because it's such a strange show. But on its own terms, I thought it was very successful. Okay, Michael, what did you think? 
Well, seeing the show again uh, for the third time, I suppose, seeing the whole show, basically the whole show, I was struck again that it's sort of a, a precursor to the concept of the film version of Chicago. Uh, and I wonder if, uh, I mean, uh, if there are others and if this was the first, but it really is fascinating. It's a straight play. Uh, with all of these fairly lengthy dialogue scenes and then punctuated by the musical sequences, which are all, all of them are dreams until the very end uh, where, where Liza has a breakthrough. Uh, that's, you know, I think that's a very effective moment. And, um, uh, Peter called them, uh, well, play with musicals. Uh, the, the, these musical sequences in this show have also been described as mini operas because there's little if any dialogue in the musical sequences there there's chanting and there's uh, it's mostly singing and then maybe maybe a couple of lines of dialogue so um that was you know was bold and audacious and apparently the original production was absolutely phenomenal in terms of the set changes from a very realistic uh, you know, for example, psychiatrist's office or a, a photorealistic uh, depiction of a of an editor's office at a magazine to these fanciful, you know, very fanciful dream sequences. One is set at a circus. Um, one is set at uh, well, you know, at various points in her life. Uh, and the glamour dream at the beginning is, is, is a really, really, really great moment. This, um, uh, as Peter mentioned, you had 120, I believe, voices of the master voices, uh, as, as standing on risers at the rear of the stage. And this is a production of master voices previously known as the collegiate chorale. Um, and actually I think that led to one of my, um, minor criticisms of this production. There were times when uh, the chorus was singing uh, while uh, other on, you know, uh, ensemble members were singing uh, the same thing placed further downstage. And sometimes the coordination wasn't completely, uh, completely right. I noticed in the opening number, actually, that was the, the worst moment of it. Oh, fabulous one. And then I thought it got better after that. But it must have been difficult for Ted Sperling, who directed as well as conducted, to try to keep um, you know them to everyone together in that vast space and with some of the singers physically separated so much. But I thought that uh, uh, yes, it was fun to see it again uh, in the same space. I, I saw the encore production also, and the the, the only um, complete fully staged production I saw, which was the best one, was in two thousand one at the Prince uh, Music Theater in Philadelphia, and that was also presided over by Ted Sperling. Uh, with Andrea Marcovici in the leading role. And um, I thought that that really convinced me that this show could still work today. Uh, the simple the simple change of making the psychiatrist uh, a, a woman rather than a man really solves a whole lot of 
potential minefield issues in terms of the the uh, gender politics of the of the piece and uh, you know because it's just i guess maybe easier for modern day audiences to accept a woman talking with a, a you know another woman about what it means to be uh, you know a woman who's a powerful woman in charge of a magazine and and trying to um you know combine her personal life with her professional life uh I so that 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 was an innovation, I believe, of the production that I saw in Philadelphia, and, and I guess it's being ca- carried forward. And it really was fun to see Amy Irving in in this production. I do not know why uh, she alone, well, among the principals anyway, seemed to not be in period garb or hairstyle, um, and that c- kind of was a distraction to me. She looked like somebody from. I don't know, either a modern day uh, psychiatrist or like, you know, almost like a hippie psychiatrist from the 60s. So I, I'm not sure why they did that. But acting wise, she was really great. I loved Victoria Clark. I had no problem with her glamour quotient. I think she was every bit as glamorous as she needed to be in the dream sequences. And in the non-dream sequences, Eliza is actually supposed to be rather severe and buttoned down and repressed. I mean, that, this is the issue. This is why she goes to the psychiatrist in the first place. But in the dream sequences, she was really great, especially because she was wearing um, gowns uh, and dresses that were provided by the likes of Zach Posen, Marquesa, and Tom Brown. Uh, Tracy Christensen did the the rest of the costumes, so I thought she was just great, and she was the best uh, singer of the three. Well, well, no, I'm sorry, Christine Eversold sang the role very well. Also, uh, Andrea Markovici not so much, although her acting was fabulous, uh, and Victoria had it all, singing, acting. I agree. Uh, David Pitu was marvelous and did a very good job of walking the line in playing a, a mm-hmm. you know a, a character that might very well be uh, considered a. I guess this used to what used to be known as the pansy role uh, in the days when shows and movies would have gay characters that would actually not identify as such, but were clearly, you know, that's what they, that's what they were. Um, the orchestra sounded just beautiful. I, I, you know, to see this show without full orchestra and those gorgeous orchestrations would be a crime. Uh, so uh, uh, so that was that's one reason why as soon as I read that this was being done again, I, 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 I said, I absolutely have to be there. I think, um, there were, there were other problems that stage at, uh, city center is so huge. And I, I imagine they didn't have much rehearsal time in the space. So it seemed like the pacing, sometimes the, the timing, uh, several people have mentioned, it seemed like when people made entrances, they didn't time them properly and it took them a while to like, kind of come in, you know, and then walk before they were able to say their lines and that, uh, sometimes made the show seem a little sluggish in paces, in places. But I think also I saw this very first performance. I don't know uh, when Peter went. I, I imagine that would be something that probably would have improved even over the two days uh, between the first and the last performance. Well, but in it, fact, I didn't notice anything of that nature. And of course, I went yesterday afternoon, the last oh. performance. So there you are. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> Proving so your I, point. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, there, I mean, there were only three performances, right? Right. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, what I'm saying is, even even running it twice uh, probably bet. helps with that. Mm-hmm. So, but but uh, I am so glad they just did this. This was really a feather in their cap, and it was a, a beautiful opportunity to to 
see and hear this really unique show again. Okay, so uh, that's Lady in the Dark. If you haven't seen it, you won't see it, at least this production of it. It was only three performances that we just mentioned, uh, but I'm glad that uh, Master Voices is uh, is doing these things. This is really great. Yes. All right. On to uh, some of the big openings in the recent past. Uh, Beetlejuice opened up, and all three of us have seen it. So, uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on Beetlejuice? Well, I didn't quite go in cold on this one because I did see the movie when it came out, but that was a long time ago. Uh, and I didn't remember a lot of it. So I basically went in cold. And I I have to say this was one of the most pleasant surprises of my recent theater going because for whatever reasons, I really expected not to like it at all, just from what I had heard and what I had read. And uh, also primarily because of the composer and lyricist, Eddie Perfect, who provided um, – all or most of the songs, quote unquote, uh, for King Kong, which I think I, I, I you know, I, I don't have the words to describe how poor I think those poorly written. I think those songs are. Uh, they don't I, even have an album yet, which is kind of interesting. Yes, I, I did notice that. <laughs> yeah. uh, very telling. Um, I would say that that the songs, music and lyrics for Beetlejuice are about 8,000 times better than for King Kong. And I can't even believe it's the same person. So I don't know if that's because of uh, time constraints. I don't know the timeline of the writing of, of each of the shows. Uh, or maybe it's just lack of inspiration in the, in the case of King Kong. If somebody asked me to write music and lyrics for King Kong, I would be completely at sea. I wouldn't even know where to start. Because I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's fodder for a musical. Well, uh, could I interrupt yes. for a second? Sure. Um, I, 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 I don't know the genesis of Beetlejuice, but the King Kong thing, it seems as though that that was a project that was passed around many, many composers. Oh, yes. 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 Uh, and I think that it, it was uh, because of the way in which King Kong was produced, we ended up with something that was... Um, less than our liking. Uh, but l let's go back to Beetlejuice. But I, the, the whole King Kong thing is really interesting. Uh, and yet it yeah. continues to do good business despite um, non, not a, <laughs> a, 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 a critical, overwhelming support of it. Yeah, that to put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Beetlejuice, I, I just enjoyed the hell out of it. I thought it was so entertaining and I, uh, you know, I really liked the, the songs. Um, I would say, uh, you know, uh, on the negative side that it is, it is to get this out of the way. This is another show where, uh, sometimes the lyrics rhyme and sometimes they don't, oh, yeah. which doesn't make sense to me. Uh, you know, if you're going to do it, a lot, you know, like if you're going to do it 60% of the time, why not do it a hundred? And I, I think that would have improved it. Um, but what can I say? Uh, I, I thought that this, the, the melodies, uh, you know, or, or it was, a, it's something of a, maybe you would say a pastiche score in that the, you know, songs, uh, are, are in different identifiable styles, but, um, there was a nice, uh, combination and a nice mix of that and i and i thought 
that he, he did a really good job. And the book uh, by Scott Brown and Anthony King, uh, again, I didn't remember a lot of the movie. Uh, I've been bo- uh, boning up uh, on it a little more since seeing the show. And it's interesting that the changes that were made, um, it's uh, primarily about this, well, this couple that, uh, this young married couple that that uh, die. And uh, then they are kind of uh, stuck in their, in the house in which they died. And then this other uh, family comes in, a young girl and her father. And in this, uh, in this version, um, not stepmother yet, but uh, a woman who the, the father is definitely planning to marry uh, played. She was played by Leslie Kritzer and fabulously, I might say. Um, and then this Beetlejuice character shows up from the, uh, you know, from the other world, and he's a, a very mischievous kind of demon, and he's uh, he wants to uh, uh, just kind of uh, use these people to uh, to get more freedom for himself, and but he he's he's just generally out to create mischief. Um, the, the differences that. that uh, a few differences that I noticed that that someone pointed out to me because I didn't remember the movie that well is that um, in this show uh, much is made and in fact the very first scene uh, of the fact that the the young girl uh, her mother has died um, in the movie that's that that is not mentioned at all the mother is basically not mentioned and by the way the young girl his name is Lydia and she's played by Sophia Ann Caruso and she. Um, I did, this is something I didn't expect. She gets the final bow in this show. Uh, it has been, I guess, reconfigured to a large extent uh, so that she is clearly the central character, whereas in the movie it was more the the young couple played by Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis and here um, – played by Carrie Butler and Rob McClure. Uh, Beetlejuice is Alex Brightman doing another amazing, very, very energetic, go-for-broke style performance. The audience just adored him. uh, uh, As was the case with School of Rock, I, I do fear for his ability to sustain eight a week in this case, because he plays Beetlejuice uh, when speaking, especially with a very, very raspy voice that I would think would, would really, really um, kind of damage his voice over the long run. Uh, I think we've had this discussion before and James, didn't you say something to the effect of that? There's a way to make that sound without hurting your vocal cords. Yeah, you really have to uh, uh, be trained in order to do it correctly. And uh, I think Bright Monster is just uh, – he's hes hes been doing it for so long that I think that he'll be okay. I hope that he'll be okay. I agree with what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's got to hurt. But hopefully yes. he's doing it correctly. Yeah, I hope so. I because he's really, he's really just great. Uh, the, the sets – uh, by David Corrins and and the costumes by William Ivy Long and the lighting by Kenneth Posner are, are absolutely amazing, and I the, the there were so many laughs in this show. I, I thought there was maybe a, some unnecessary vulgarity, but that was kind of part of the style, and especially you know Beetlejuice is supposed to be that kind of a you know 
very provocative. Michael, I, I was, I just want to interrupt you for a second because I agree with exactly what you're saying, and I kept on thinking to myself, "Oh, this would be a great number for the Tony Awards." Oh, they can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, because you're going along, and then suddenly there's a fuck, you know, yeah. or <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But I uh, and Alex Timbers, I think, did a, a beautiful, really, really stellar job of putting this all together as director. Uh, great choreography by Connor Gallagher. The audience, uh, I, I, I kind of felt that electricity you feel when an audience is absolutely loving a show. And I was so surprised after what I had heard and read. And also, as I said, based on my previous experience of Eddie Perfect. So I... Um, uh, you know, uh, I think we always would much rather love something than hate it. Uh, uh, people, some people don't think that's true of critics, but it's it is true of me, and I'm sure it's it's true of most of us, if not all of us. So, I I was thrilled, and I would urge everyone to see it. And I, in my opinion, uh, you should not listen to the naysayers. Okay, Peter, what's your uh, thoughts on this? Uh, I'm not as enthusiastic, but I'm uh, I'm not uh, angry or ready to deliver a pan. I thought it was a smart idea to bring in Beetlejuice right from the very beginning. I'm um, talking about the character. Uh, Michael Keaton doesn't show up for a long time in that movie. Mm. Um, I also think it was wise to have Alex Brightman have better teeth than uh, Michael Keaton had in the movie. <laughs> <clears throat> but, uh, you know, uh, yes, I was worried about um, Alex Brightman's voice, but I also was tired of hearing somebody who sounded like he was gargling with razor blades. I mean, it was just an unpleasant thing to do. And there's one moment where he drops that voice just for a couple of lines. I forget the circumstance, but he drops it purposely. I mean, and and it's such a pleasure to hear a real voice rather than an artificial one. And I wish that um, the character didn't uh, have to be that way. Um, also, I, he drops it when he's singing. Yeah. For the true. most part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sure. So... Um, so I like very much that uh, he's essentially the MC of the evening who gets things rolling. Uh, he tells us a show about death right from the very beginning. Um, I don't think it's so smart that uh, he tells us in advance that the couple will die. That's a surprise in the film. We don't expect that to happen, and I don't see any need why he has to tell us in advance that um, uh, Rob McClure and Carrie Butler, um, <clears throat> who essentially are this uh, generation's Brad and Janet from the uh, Rocky Horror Show, because um, they're rather square and um, have trouble catching on to what's going on and a little on the nerdy side. So, um, so I did think that that was um, not um, necessary to tell us they were going to die in advance. That should have been a surprise. But, of course, I'm breaking the surprise now, so maybe I'm just as guilty as they are. Uh, I do think that Beetlejuice has too many manic patter songs. Um, I think they get wearing after a while. But, yes, um, there's a very famous story about um, Carol Burnett uh, when she got a letter out of the blue from uh, somebody saying, uh, gee, a lot of people think that I resemble you and uh, I'm going to be in this contest and uh, would you come down and see me? And Carol Burnett did and that's how Vicki Lawrence started her career that she um, was so impressed with um, Vicki Lawrence and she had been talking about having a, um, <clears throat> a little sister on her show and suddenly this happened. I mean, God knows how many fan letters have been written in this ilk and nothing ever came of them. Why am I mentioning this? Because 
if this were another era and Carol Burnett's still were on TV and Leslie Kritzer were alive then and she had written the letter, Leslie Kritzer would have had Vicki Lawrence's career because um, she really is this generation's Carol Burnett. Uh, and I'd love to see her in Once Upon a Mattress. I'd love to see her in Fade Out, Fade In. I'm not sure she'd be interested in doing any uh, either of those because um, she might want to get away from the anything that even makes her resemble Carol Burnett because she wants to be Leslie Kritzer as well. She should be because she's a phenomenal talent. Her timing is excellent, uh, magnificent, um, really knows how to suck over a line, really knows how to suck over a lyric, really terrific, terrific performance. And um, yes, indeed, um, there's no question in my mind that uh, she'll get a Tony nomination. So um, that character, by the way, has been reconfigured tremendously. Um, she is now uh, has a different occupation. She is a life coach. And um, <clears throat> and we get some laughs out of that. But I'll tell you, even the way Leslie Kritzer sits in a chair is funny. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, the Act 2 opening song made me check my playbill ah. uh, because I had forgotten uh, who had written the score. And I thought, oh, did Tim Minchin do this? The guy who wrote Matilda and Groundhog Day? Because he's uh, based on two shows, which doesn't really, two is not enough to say a trend. But both those shows have an irrelevant, totally irrelevant number to start the second act. And I think that's something that he wants to do as a style. Uh, and so does Beetlejuice. The second act opening uh, just has nothing to do with anything. So um, I did notice that. Um, Sophia Ann Caruso. Okay. I mean, she's a kid. I mean, she's a teenager. And um, I think her lack of experience shows when she's on stage with the other pros because they have much more stage dust on their feet. Uh, and um, But really, I mean, for a young person to be doing all this, to be the center of the show, Michael um, pointed out she gets the last bow. I didn't expect that, but I, I'm not quarreling with it. I can fully mm -hmm. understand why she gets the last bow. She really is the center of the show. It was... Um, <clears throat> So for a kid, she certainly holds stage well with others, and even when she's alone, um, she only seems green because she's surrounded by so many top-flight pros. But, but wow. thank God she doesn't have a case of the cutes. It was very ballsy of this um, director and uh, company to give her the lead. Uh, that could have worked out very, very badly, and it hasn't. So I think that's really good. Um, I do believe the pop songs are really quite bouncy. Um, at the end of the show... Uh, Beetlejuice promises a sequel. Um, I'm not sure I'm interested in that. <laughs> but um, what I'll, what's also worth mentioning is that um, Beetlejuice, the character, um, twice disparages, of all things, Brigadoon. Um, I checked, by the way, in the next 18 months, um, Brigadoon, will, which will be 73 years old at that point, will receive dozens of productions literally from sea to shining sea, from Freeport, Maine this August to San Bruno, California next January. And I'm not sure the theaters will be doing Beetlejuice um, 73 years from now in 2092. So um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that uh, uh, the expression "fuck Brigadoon" um, <laughs> was particularly necessary. But uh, anyway, um, you know I'd feel that way. But uh, uh, I, 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 as I say, I wasn't enthusiastic. It was it was amiable. It was throughable, like so many shows. Um, I never learned that the first act, um, when I think, oh, that's okay, that the second act won't be nearly as good, which is what I felt here. But uh, I don't begrudge it anything. And yes, Michael, the audience was having a hell of a time when I went. Uh, I don't oh. know if it was the same performance. And um, so I do think it will be a word-of-mouth hit. So the word I kept on thinking about uh, when I saw Beetlejuice 
um, and help me here if I'm using it incorrectly, was irreverent. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, no you, <laughs> you're uh, fine. And and I adored it, and I adored the uh, the breaking of the fourth wall that Alex did, um, and right from the opening song, yes. you know, you know, uh, uh, when he says something along the lines of, well, you, you, we're not going to stick with the movie you didn't expect us to, or something along that line. Uh, I thought it was really, really smart producing. And I think that they benefit from lowered expectations, maybe that when it came through the Kennedy center, everybody kind of said, Oh, I'm not sure that this is it. And, Evidently, there were a tremendous amount of changes made to it and a little bit of infighting that was reported in Michael Riedel's column for Beetlejuice, uh, the creative team, in between D.C. and New mm. York. And I think that it – I think they got it right. I re, I had a, such a great, great time uh, and I laughed really hard and – I didn't think it was, you know, uh, it, it, it it's not uh, a tremendously serious musical, and I don't oh, think that, no, no. and, uh, you know, so you, you can't put it in the class of the Carousel's um, previous productions, not this last one. Or the, um, the Brigadoons. Yeah, or the Brigadoons, exactly. And, but the... You know, I think that there was a lot of uh, musical theater insidery stuff, which crowds that come to see this stuff very early in a run will enjoy and get it. I'm not sure that uh, a year from now that uh, the crowds will, uh, as a larger percentage, get all that musical theater insidery stuff. But I think that they'll still have a great time at it. I I think Sophia Ann Caruso was, was incredible, and I just couldn't believe how young she is and how... Uh, she's doing such a great, great job up there um, along the same lines as uh, people who are the, the Leslie Ann Kritzers and the Alex Brightmans who have carried shows before and uh, Carrie Butler and Rob McClure. And uh, it's just I think it, I, I think this is a really good thing to see. I kept on trying to figure out how they're going to do a, a number on the Tonys. <laughs> and so I think they're going to have to. Uh, change some words or into uh, do only slices of some some of the show some of the numbers, but um, I think this is going to be around for a long time, uh, and I don't um, I don't find that to be a problem at all. I really I, I thought it was very good. Parenthetically, did you guys see this incredibly sweet, wonderful, lovely thing that Rob McClure did? Yeah, he put the note in the balcony. Yes, um, it's. I'll just read the first yeah, part. Sure. Of it. Yeah. Me- mezzanine D8 tenant, I think it says. Uh-huh. Uh, my, name, my name is Rob McClure, and I wanted to share a full circle memory with you. 23 years ago on a school trip in sixth grade, I sat in this very seat to see my very first Broadway show. And then he goes on to say how, you know, broad being on Broadway was an unattainable, unfathomable dream for him. And, you know, he just and tonight he's playing the the role, his role in this show. And he just wanted to say that dreams can come true. This was a note, apparently a note, a handwritten note uh, on on a loose leaf paper (laughs) uh, that he left in in that seat for whoever was going to be sitting there that night. Maybe he gave it to an usher to give to that person or something like that. Isn't that just 
sweet and beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's you like bet. a Wonka golden ticket, and hopefully the person <laughs> and, and the person who sat in that seat. I hope that they kept it and didn't throw it away. You know, <laughs> you know, it's me. I'd be the person that opens the Wonka bar and like eats the bar and throws the ticket away because I'm like, oh, that was a good bar. Well, seeing how that person took a photo of it and and tweeted it. Sure. No, that was. Uh, yeah. I think that was Rob that took the photo and tweeted it. I don't. Was that the right? Oh yeah. Person oh. Did oh, okay. That. Oh, I, okay. I think so. I'm not. I'm not 100. percent It could be. You know, this is my streak of wrongness in the last couple of weeks. So <laughs> quite possibly. Oh yeah, uh, Lucas Nath. His name is Nath, yes. not Nath. Nath. Uh, yeah. And thank you to all the listeners who emailed us and told me and tweeted and called me and everything. Uh, I do appreciate that. But Lucas Nath, not uh, Nath or Nath. Now or, we know. Now we know. Exactly. Uh, now we also know uh, that there is a new musical at the Marquee Theater called Tootsie. And um, I have a question about the title, but... Peter, why don't you tell us what you thought of Tootsie first? Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the title because I've, I've always – there's just a fleeting reference to the word Tootsie in the show. Yeah. And uh, it's so interesting that that was the uh, the, the um, word they sent it on to make the title. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so there's one way that Santino Fontana comes up short in Tootsie. <laughs> And that is because he's too tall. Um, he's, almost, he's almost six feet tall, you know, which is an atypical height for a woman, uh, or at least an actor who pretends to be a woman. Uh, you may remember from the original film that um, Michael Dorsey um, has a reputation as being a difficult act- actress, so he has to reinvent himself as an actress. And that gives him a whole new chance at roles, as well as um, some insight on how women are treated and mistreated. Now, in the film... Dustin Hoffman's lack of height helped him to become a convincing Dorothy Michaels. But uh, I, I always felt that um, he came up short in a different way. And that is, I never believed his voice. His voice was too chirpy. And um, I try to find a woman who sounds like Hoffman does in that picture. I don't think it's easy to do. Um, I think Fontana's feminine voice, while not amazingly convincing, is much more convincing. So, so are his legs, by the way, when uh, the few times that we see him through Dennis Jones' um, choreography but he flutters his hands like a woman does too which is really good and he has this winning smile and you really are glad that he's winning at least for the first act of course if he was winning all along he wouldn't have a second act but um tootsie has one that's almost as good as the first and the reason is and here is the real credit in this production robert horn um who wrote the book and i'm telling you that uh, there are so few lines from that original movie in this script. It's so wonderful to see it completely reinvented in so many ways. And I just don't mean the fact that um, Dorothy Michaels was originally a soap opera actress and now she's a, a Broadway performer. In a way that had to happen if you're going to keep it in New York, because I don't know if any soap is still being filmed in New York, taped in New York. I don't know. I don't think so. But anyway, um, so uh, he becomes a Broadway performer. Uh, in this musical uh, called Juliet's Curse. It's a stretch to think that everybody loves him so much. And Julie Halston, who's the lead producer, and of course she's wonderful. It's a small role, but she's wonderful. What would you expect from Julie Halston? Anyway, um, 
decides that instead of calling it Juliet's Curse, they're going to call it Juliet's Nurse because that's the character that uh, Dorothy Michaels is playing. And um, it's a little hard to believe that that's going to happen. Also, if, you, if you're really sitting close and you look closely, there's a scene on the subway where there's um, an ad above where people sit for the show, and it says Dorothy Michaels in Tootsie. Well, I'm not sure that a, a rank beginning would get billing over the title, but again, this is musical comedy Maven type stuff. So, But really, I'm telling you, there are so many new lines in this show, and the jokes are terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, the lines, um, one after the other, are, are, are Neil Simon variety in the best sense of what that means. Um, so this isn't just a situation where they take the screenplay and they cut out a little bit so that you can fit in songs. but um, And also a lot of plot points were changed, too. Um, two seemingly important characters. Um, the Charles Journey role is gone. Um, you may recall Jessica Lange, um, who won an Oscar for the part, though my colleague Doug Strassler, who uh, on the Drama Desk, when we were discussing all this, said the reason she was in the supporting category had to do with the fact that she was also nominated that year um, in the leading category, and they didn't want to playing against each other. So, uh, But anyway, this character, Julie, who works on the show, um, in the original movie, had a father and a child, and both of those have been eliminated. Also, there was a romance, uh, a would-be romance, from uh, one of the actors on the soap who was an older man. Here it's a younger man, and it's a very different uh, situation. And so, again, a reinvention, which is really quite nice. I will tell you that this um, young man who's a lousy actor... Um, appreciates Dorothy because she he says she makes him a better actor. So again, there's more texture here. There's a lot more going on, so I think that's good. But um, but you're going to really laugh a lot at these new lines. Um, Andy Grotolution, uh, who we know from the Fiasco Theater, um, doing things like Into the Woods with them, plays the Bill Murray role, the, the best friend, and um, though he's not above en- enjoying some schadenfreude um, at his expense, believe me, but um, the show starts off terribly, but purposely so. You see this generic number, and you think, oh, my God, good Lord, is this what this show's going to be like? What a terrible opening number. Not even in the worst days of TV variety shows did you ever done with this bet. And what happens is the mm-hmm. director comes on stage and says, okay, yeah, let's do that again. So it's, it's the number that um, Dorothy is in. Uh, I'm sorry, Michael is in. Michael is in. Uh, and... Um, and he starts criticizing. And this is good, too, because there's not that much of that in the original movie where we see where Michael is difficult. Here we see Michael is difficult, but we're on his side because he's right. So that's really uh, something impressive. Um, I do wish that uh, the agent played by um, Michael McGraw, uh, one of my favorite performers and certainly a comic genius, um, had much more to do. Um, he doesn't, and I'm sorry that he was underused. Um, so that's that's a bit of a problem, too, for me. But, but, but uh, really, this is a very good musical and um, I think it's the best directing job that Scott Ellis ever did and or has done, I should say. And um, David Yazbek's uh, lyrics are always terrific. He has such wonderful insights um, that um, I'll, I'll just give you one uh, example. Uh, the character of Sandy, um, the one played by Terry Garr in the movie, where um, his his friend and maybe girlfriend, Michael's friend or girlfriend uh it's sort of an on again off again should we shouldn't we uh, type relationship uh well um 
she has a problem with uh, getting cast too. And um, as she points out in the lyric, uh, talking about people who are auditioning her, they all say it's good to see ya, but all I'll, I'll see are judges, and they'll all look like Scalia. Um, and that's really good because the word judges, you know, because when you're auditioning, you are essentially in front of judges, aren't you? Um, not judges on the Supreme Court like Scalia, but nevertheless judges. So, so um, I also have to say, Lily Cooper, as Julie, uh, is terrific in being so natural. It's a very unaccuracy performance, and she has a song that I really believe is unique in the annals of musical theater. I've never heard a song on this subject. What it is, okay, I'll tell you, and if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead, but this is a spoiler, but she sings a song about how she was involved with a man, but she was busy acting, she was on the road, and she was getting parts, and it really hurt the relationship. And she's very glad that she has the career. The career is more important to her than the love. Uh, You may disagree with the sentiment, but um, a lot of people (laughs) would rather have the success than the relationship. You know, the success puts money in your pocket. The relationship arguably takes it out of it. But anyway, but a very good lyric, too, when she mentions that um, she came home and everything in the left of the closet was gone. That's a good line. Um, because, uh, we, we see the empty closet, uh, that part of the closet, which she's talking about. So, so, um, so I think this is very successful. What's really interesting to me though, more than anything else. All right. I watched the movie before I went and the, um, it says screenplay by Larry Gelbart and Murray Shiskel. It's a well-known fact that Elaine May worked on it, too, and a few other writers as well. I'm not quarreling with that. But the musical doesn't credit Shizkel at all, and it gives Don McGuire a co-story credit with Gelbart. Okay, that's fine. But have you ever seen this credit in a list of Playbill bios? I know what you're going to say. I've I've seen that, and uh, a lot of people are talking about it. Dustin Hoffman, parentheses, underlying rights. Underlying rights? Wow. Um, anyway, well, if Hoffman had the power to give it thought, take it away, let's be glad and grateful that he greenlit this very fine uh, musical. You know, the things that happen in Hollywood contracts, yeah. it's <laughs> astounding they ever make money. <laughs> Although they do, <laughs> you look at the Forrest Gump lawsuit out there, uh, the, for the movie of Forrest Gump, they, they claim that it never made any money. Uh, the, the studio claims it never made any money that Forrest Gump because people have contracts that stay that say that they make a percentage of the profits, and the studio is like, "Oh, this Forrest Gump never made any money. Hardly anybody saw it, you know." <laughs> and hasn't Forrest Gump tried to be adapted? Did somebody try to adapt Forrest Gump? I sort of remember. I, I don't remember that. <laughs> so uh, Tootsie, um, I, I think my wife uh, Laura. Uh, summed it up in a sentence. She said, it's a comedy with music. I, I laughed a whole lot. And the the music, I'm not sure, as Peter pointed out, the lyrics were really amazing in the music. I'm not sure I could really hum any of the songs. Uh, uh, but I had a very good time. And what a cast that was involved in this thing. Uh, and I think that we, Andy Gratolution, I think stole a lot of the show for me. 
Uh, this is an amazing, amazing, amazing cast. And one of the things that I kept on thinking about was the uh, Santino going back and forth uh, between the Michael and the Dorothy uh, characters. His his speaking voice as Michael is so wonderful, and he never misses a beat in, beat in the Dorothy thing. And I'm glad they updated the story. Uh, <laughs> Dorothy had her own cell phone uh, for her Broadway show, and there's a lot of. Um, and he also he also mentioned to the uh, Gratolution character. Uh, Jeff, that uh, Jeff had to create a whole backstory on the internet for for Dorothy. That way, we could, you know, if anybody right. Googled, or, you know, Dorothy Michaels, they would understand where she was from. And then the the references to s- some of the older plays. I don't remember if they were in the movie. Do you, Peter? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't think I do. Oh, oh, you mean like our town? Yeah, and, our town and. Right. Um, no, uh, that's not in the movie. That's that's definitely new stuff. Yeah. So th- those are clever, and it, it, mm-hmm. it, as the as the joke broke across the audience, yeah, as right, people started exactly. to get it, it was so right, interesting. Right. I I really yeah. love that. Uh, yeah, and I again, and again, wonderful producing. They've pulled off something that uh, I looked at literally when I, it was announced. And I had a very good time at it. And um, I look forward to Michael's review of this. Michael, when are you going to see it? May 1st. May 1st. So I guess this week coming up. So we'll talk about it again next week. I'm really looking forward to it. When I interviewed Santino a few months ago for the Drama Desk, mm-hmm. I uh, not having seen the show and and not having tried to find any clips online, even if there are any, I don't know. Uh, I asked him about the voice a little bit, and he really didn't want to talk about it. Um, he said... Uh, you know, I was trying to like I was asking him questions like, well, you know, when Dorothy sings, is she a soprano or, you know, do, and mm-hmm. he said, I and, and I said, how do you what, how do you do? And he said, I really he said, I really can't explain how I do it. <laughs> so I I think it sounds like it's kind of instinctual. What, yeah, well, what the thing st- about it is it's not a caricature. It really feels no, authentic, no, no. Yeah, which I right. think is is. I, I don't know how they're going to replace Santino. You know, they they always they will find the thousands of really talented people to in New York and around the world that can do this role certainly. But to me, it's like you know, it's like uh, you know, how do you replace Alex Brightman and Sophie Ann Caruso in Beetlejuice? That that this is going to be a, those are going to be tough things to replace. So yes. um, and and the title, as I alluded to at the top of this, was. Uh, you know, as Peter mentioned, it's it's real. It's it's barely a men, a mention in the show, and here we are with this wonderful logo and and basing the all the marketing around this thing. There's no title song. Well, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that because I I, I think I brought this up before. I that's the case in the movie also. Yeah. And I and I've always said uh, even by 1982 when that movie came out, I don't think Tootsie was still a, a word right, that right, that was right. current. You know, I mean, yeah, yes, yeah. in that case it's supposed to be an older character who says it. So if someone if someone old in nineteen eighty two, I guess maybe you would say that they came of age when Tootsie, you know, was used like in the forties and fifties. Uh but I but it just I always thought it, it was an odd very odd choice. Okay. Uh, the three of us got a chance to get over to the American Airlines Theater to see Roundabout Theater Company's production of 
Ball, my son. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on that? I think it's terrific beyond belief. Um, uh, a wonderful production, the best of the six I've seen. And there was not one time, not two times, but three times that actually Annette Benning made me um, have tears in my eyes. I think she's extraordinary as Kate Keller. There's a very interesting thing happening when, with her entrance because the first time you see her, you just spy her through a window and um, she is a star after all. And one wonders if the audience is going to applaud there. Or is this a situation where uh, the director and Jack O'Brien has done a spectacular job. Anyway, if the director decided, well, you know, if we let them see her early, but in a very uh, veiled way, uh, that will diffuse the applause. We don't want the entrance applause. Um, that could have mm. been the decision. Um, but anyway, she comes out uh, <laughs> into the backyard where everything is set. And the audience applauded anyway, believe me, when they got their real good look at her. I, I do believe they saw her through the window, I, but they would just, they felt, no, that's not the time to applaud yet because she wasn't the center of attention. There was still a lot going on with uh, Joe Keller, her husband, wonderfully played by Tracy Letts, who looks very much like Dick Cheney now, for better or worse. Very um, much. Oh, you very, think so too, huh? Yeah. Very, very much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, um, and he's quite wonderful too. If you don't know the story, it involves uh, a fact that uh, Joe... Um, runs a factory that uh, has a government contract and um, something went wrong with uh, some of the product and his partner got blamed for it and actually did jail time. He's doing jail time, in fact, and um, his uh, daughter is very much upset that he um, did this terrible thing. When we find out as time goes on that it was really Joe who did the terrible thing and he got off the hook. And um, Tracy Letts is very good at indicating how magnanimous he is, uh, that he will let him come back, not as a partner, but he has a job when he gets out and he seems so magnanimous. And the thing is, he's guilty, you know, so it's very... Um, grand to be magnanimous when you're the guilty party. So so why did um, Annette Benning make me cry? Well, uh, they had a son they lost in the war. He's missing in action, but she will not believe that he is dead. And she points out things like last week in the paper, we found a guy who was missing longer than Larry uh, came back. So with his life, there's hope in essence. And um, nobody else believes it. And in fact, um, the daughter of the partner... Um, that's Ann Deaver, uh, knows very well that he's not coming back, but that's another story. And she was engaged to him. She was going to marry Larry. And um, now that he's gone, uh, she's picked up a relationship with um, the other brother, who's played by Benjamin Walker. That's Chris Keller. So um, it gets pretty sticky and complicated because um, Kate does not want Ann to marry Chris, because she believes Larry is coming back, and that's Larry's girl. So there are a lot of complications here, and there are times when the play itself, the play by Arthur Miller I'm talking about, not the direction, verges on melodrama, uh, or even surpasses uh, the line of melodrama. But but it's extraordinarily moving, um, and especially um, it seems to take us back to 1947, when there really was a backyard culture, where it's all in the backyard, and... In those days, you know, people used to visit each other in the backyard. There was much more neighborly feelings going on. So um, 
in in the line in the grass is always greeted tess harding sings do you know who your neighbors are that's wonderful and these people did know who their neighbors were and um people drop in and out i mean there are a lot of tiny characters who come in for a few minutes and say a few things and all that so um so it, it really is nice to see that type of uh society that we I, I don't know if we have it anymore. I mean, those of us who live in um, Manhattan certainly don't have it. So maybe in the suburbs that still goes on. But it was just nice uh, to see that. But really, it's worth seeing alone for Annette Benning, who is really such a down-to-earth earth mother. Um, and I really uh, was so impressed that um, somebody who started off on the stage after all, and then, of course, went to Hollywood and married someone very famous and um, hasn't been back for a while and um, doing so well. I did have an issue with Benjamin Walker. You know, a lot of people said to me, oh, was Benjamin Walker terrific? No, I don't think he was. And I'll tell you why. Um, he's played as a very callow lad. And it's established that he's already been in the service, that he was in the war as well. And you don't get the impression that he um, has had that experience. He seems very naive. And some of that's in the writing, I'll grant you. Uh, but I do believe that uh, this character should have more heft than um, the wide-eyed innocence that Benjamin Walker seems to be giving it. So that was my one objection to the uh, production. It's not a severe one. It doesn't uh, kill it. And um, But do go for Annette Benning. All right, Michael, what did you think? I assistant directed a production of this show many years ago. So, and then I've seen both of the two Broadway revivals prior to this in 1987 and 2008. So I guess I know it really, really well. And uh, it's so interesting as a play to begin with. Uh, Peter mentioned melodrama, which is certainly true. But there's also, uh, many people have noticed, elements of Greek tragedy in it. And also, uh, you know what else? Uh, Ibsen. Uh, like the idea of the sins of the fathers uh, being visited on the sons. Uh, I didn't have that uh, specific problem with Benjamin Walker. I, I, uh, if you if you read it that way, I could see why that would be a problem, Peter, because, yes, he's not supposed to be callow in that way. Uh, I mean, he's supposed to have been through a lot. And interestingly, um, there are references uh, in the play to Chris having been in a battle in which he was almost killed. When he was in the war. But this production um, brings that home. There's one scene at the beginning of Act Two where uh, Chris is chopping down or cutting down the rest of a tree uh, mm -hmm. that had been planted for his brother and has blown down in a storm. And while chopping down the tree, he's got his shirt off and we see his back is, uh, I, I guess it's supposed to be shrapnel, like a, a scarred with, you know, real severely scarred with shrapnel. So uh, it's not just a <laughs> reference, not just a reference to him having almost been killed. You can actually see that. And I thought that was a good directorial choice. I uh, completely agree with that with Annette Benning. I had the pleasure to see her in coastal disturbances years ago. Uh, and she it, it is amazing how she's retained her stage chops, even though she's done so little of it since then. Uh, I'm, I'm glad she's back. And I uh, yes, she was extraordinary. And 
Tracy Letts was her equal. I I did love Ben Walker. I thought he was wonderful. And also Francesca Carpanini, uh, who, who plays Anne Deaver. Uh, I had I had some problems with the production overall uh, because I I unfortunately felt that several of the uh, supporting roles were severely miscast, including Michael Hayden and this fellow Hampton Fluker who played George Deaver. I just did not like them at all. Uh, but other than that, I I really thought it was great. I thought it was a great idea to have a, a beautiful uh, photorealistic set by Douglas W. Schmidt. And there's a... a, a really, really effective effect at the beginning where um, uh, it starts actually with film clips. Uh, and then what we see is uh, what, what seems like a photo of an actual exterior of, of the house. And it it morphs into, you know, you know, because that's projected on a scrim, I guess. And then it morphs into the actual house. And it's and you you realize that it it was a photo of the set, uh, and that was really really great. And also going from the black and white clips, you know, evoking World War II. We were so used to seeing World War II movies in you know in black and white and newsreels, etc. And then to have it pop into full color in 3D was was extraordinary. Um, so I'm glad that the play is, is, is back, and I, I think it is a vehicle for some really great actors. And, um, you know, and also a tribute to Arthur Miller, who was not yet at his full powers. There is some clunkiness and some overriding in the play, but boy, does it pack a wallop when it, you know, when it counts. Speaking of scars on the back, Hmm. I'd like to bring up another show I saw last week called Safe Word. Now, Safe Word starts with uh, a, a master and a slave, um, a, a man who is a professional dominant who charges $300 an hour to uh, whip you. And uh, what does happen is we find out that the master is has just moved into a new apartment building with his boyfriend, and the boyfriend makes friends with a woman, and the woman is the wife of the guy who is the slave. So they have a dinner party, and isn't the master and slave surprised when they show up there? Now, here's my problem. All right. Um, the guy is established as paying $300 once or even twice a week to be whipped. <laughs> now, really, um, are you telling me that his wife doesn't see the marks on his back? I mean, the guy goes into great detail about how he loves to be, and this is the word, humiliated. Okay, if we're talking humiliation, there are other things that the playwright could have done to indicate humiliation that wouldn't involve scars in the back. Dress him up like a little girl. Make him eat out of a dog bowl. Make him succeed the guy who's playing in Sincerely Oscar off-Broadway. There are plenty of ways to <laughs> humiliate people. <laughs> yes, it is. And not a moment too soon. There are so many ways to humiliate without any scarring. I don't know why this didn't occur to the playwright, that the mm -hmm. wife would, would notice the scars in the back. Ridiculous. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I... 
don't have much to add for all my sons. I agree with uh, uh, Michael and Peter here. It's it's a really wonderful production, a, a wonderful cast. Uh, interesting about the whole Michael Hayden thing, um, because he was one of my, one of my favorite Billy Bigelow's back in the uh, NT yes. production of Carousel. I don't know. Was that ninety two something like that? So ninety three. Yeah, right. uh, came from London to Lincoln Center. Uh, so uh, it's good to see Michael Hayden back on stage here. Even if uh, I do agree with you, there's there was something off about that portrayal. I I felt really creepy and queasy and thinking to myself, I wouldn't want him as my doctor. Uh, it, yeah, the body language was very was, odd, wasn't it? It was such an odd thing, but overall a very good production. And Annette Benning, I, I think that I think that that's the first time I've seen her on stage. I, I can't think of anything else I saw her in, but you, it was really. You didn't? Did you not see that King Lear um, in the park? No, I didn't. I didn't see that. All right, so uh, let's move on to Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. Peter, you got a chance to see that. Tell us about that. Well, what I will say more than anything else is that Nathan Lane, Christine Nielsen, and Julie White are really committed to this play. They are acting as if they're in the biggest hit that ever hit Broadway, and I really commend them for giving it their all. Um, 100% is not adequate to describe the level of commitment they're giving to this play. You know how sometimes people say about a play or a movie, you know, I didn't know it was going on half the time. Um, It was more than half the time for me. This show was totally lost on me. I did my homework to find out what Titus Andronicus um, spruced up on that. I mean, I've seen it a couple of times, but... Um, and I understand that this is the aftermath, as it says, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, which is a very bloody play. And so the stage is filled with, um, well, I wish they were corpses. Um, not real, of course, but I mean, they're not realistic. And I guess they felt that would just be too severe, but they're um, floppy type of um, stage dummies. And uh, uh, the men are uh, anatomically correct, by the way. Um, but... But they're um, not at all realistic, and I think they should have been. Uh, maybe people will say, no, that would make me too sick. But um, but uh, I didn't laugh once. I semi-smiled once, and um, the play just didn't resonate with me. And as I say, I really didn't quite get the point of it. Now, this is a very polarizing play. I was just reading on all that chat. Somebody referred to it as brilliant. Perhaps it is. Um, but Taylor Mack's um, intention or um, certainly the dialogue he chose for these characters uh, didn't do it for me at all. What really surprised me is that Julie White starts the play and then uh, exits and Nathan Lane and Christine Nielsen uh, take over. And you don't see Julie White again. I checked my watch for more than 45 minutes. And that really surprised me. Um and when she comes back, she has much more to do than um, the other characters. But still, I'm very surprised in a 90-minute play that she's not there for half of it. Well, that's not uh, a problem with it. I mean, after all, that's when he, when Taylor Mac wrote the play, he didn't have to be concerned with, uh, am I going to get a, some, a Tony winner to be in this part? And uh, it's not generous enough. I mean, he wrote the play he wanted to write. It just wasn't the play that I wanted to see. All right. So that is Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. Michael, you scheduled to see this? Yes. All right. And 
And I saw a production of Titus Andronicus only about three years ago, so maybe that'll help. <laughs> I can't remember three weeks ago. Three days uh-huh. ago. So, I mean, three years ago. God bless you. Well, I mean, uh, it's, I have to it go... a lot, it's a lot more recent than, than 30 years ago. So you know are... what's really helpful? I go back and listen to our reviews about things. You know, we've been doing this 10 years. So really? we, I wonder if we did, if we recorded your Titus Andronicus, Michael, we can go back and listen to it and say, oh, yeah, I remember that. That's right. I think, yeah, I think I did talk about it. So we'll, I'll, All I'll right. look that up. So we'll have to check that out. The three of us, to wrap up the morning, got a chance to get to the Samuel J. Friedman Theater, where a production of Ink that was imported from London came to visit with us. Uh, Michael, do you want to start with us with Ink? Yeah, I don't have much to say. I really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, this play premiered um, just about two years ago at the Almeida in London, and it's by James Graham, and it is about uh, – well, it, the two main characters are Larry Lamb, who is the editor of The Sun, the, 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 the tabloid The Sun, the London tabloid, um, and – Rupert Murdoch, who needs no introduction. Um, uh, one thing that was surprising to me is that uh, Rupert Murdoch is a, is a smaller role than I thought in in this play. Uh, but Bertie Carvel makes such a strong impression that it seems larger. Um, and uh, it was only kind of in retrospect that I that I realized, oh, he wasn't really on stage that much, was he? Uh, but he, he his his voice is so distinctive, and his presence and his his body language we just mentioned, uh, he he really really makes quite an impression. And Johnny Lee Miller as Larry Lamb is phenomenal. He uh, Johnny Lee Miller did not play this role in the London production. It was uh, someone named Richard Coyle. So that's interesting. I'm not sure what, what happened with that. Um, and this uh, piece is inherently interesting to me uh, just because it's about journalism. And I did used to work for an actual newspaper, um, although it wasn't a tabloid, I'm, I'm happy to say. I uh, I really liked the first scene between Larry Lamb and Rupert Murdoch. I uh, where they're where they're discussing the uh, you know the uh, Larry uh, becoming the editor of the Sun and uh, oh by the way this um, the time frame of of this play is is very limited it's only uh, supposed to uh, take place in 1969 so not much not more than a year is spanned i think that was a very wise choice there, there's so much they could have written about uh you know in in terms of the tabloid journalism and they could have brought it forward you know to obviously to the present day but i think to see the origins is was really really interesting um and as i said i i I was very involved in the first scene. I thought then that um, the first act became a little diffuse, and I actually got a little bored uh, because there was a lot of sort of setup and exposition. In act two, um, uh, it became much more interesting to me because two – Things happen. Two major things happen. There's a kidnapping, which I won't say more about that because uh, I don't want to spoil it. And then also there's this whole issue of uh, in order to boost circulation, they come up with the idea of they're going to have uh, uh, women, uh, topless women, uh, uh, have their photos 
in the sun. And there's much, uh, you know, discussion of that, whether they're, you know, just being whores and selling out. And, and there's a, uh, there's a very long scene with the woman who's being asked to do it. The first woman who's being asked to do it. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. Although I also felt that they spent like maybe two or three times as much time on that, that than they needed to, uh, you know, I, I think the point was, was interesting and the, and the fact was interesting, but I, I just didn't need, I think it needed to be dealt with at such great length. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's a strong script, uh, and it's well-directed by Rupert Gould. And in addition to Bertie Carvel and Johnny Lee Miller, there are, um, some wonderful performances by, uh, let's see, David Wilson Barnes, Bill Buell, Andrew Durand, glad to see him, uh, bouncing back after head over heels <laughs> in a very different role. Um, and, uh, the rest of the people, uh, you know, I mean, everyone just did a great job and, uh, oh, Michael Sibbery, who's always fun to see on stage. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. All right, Peter, what'd you think? Well, earlier I was talking about the fact that when I see a musical and the first act is okay, the second act's going to be murder. Um, <clears throat> here in this play, uh, we had a first act that didn't interest me all that much mm. and a second act that did. Um, it seemed to me the, the, the first act of the play was basically a Wikipedia article, yeah. uh, just looking at the facts and how it happened and so on and so forth. And there wasn't much drama in it. Um <clears throat> But in the second act, two things do happen. There is a, a big story about a kidnapping and how the paper handles it, and maybe how the, 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 the paper was complicit in the way that things worked out. And the scene that Michael felt uh, went on too long, I did not, because uh, uh, the idea of putting on, um, uh, putting in a paper a, a, a naked girl uh, must have been an amazing discussion. I'm sure that there was plenty of discussion on that, a do we dare or shall we and all that. So so that really, um, I, both, both of those incidents really compelled uh, me uh, to watch the play far more carefully and with greater interest than the first act did. Something to see, um, pretty Carvel being so thin. We, uh, when we first met him in Matilda, of course, he wore this enormous suit. And now we know it was an enormous suit, unless he's gone on some sort of keto diet or Atkins or something, because, I mean, he really is real thin. Um, and uh, his posture is terrible, which I imagine he's essentially um, replicating Rupert Mur Murdoch's posture. I don't know. But um, what I will say is that people who really um, have followed the rise and fall or rise and rise of the sun newspaper tell me that um, this is not remotely historically accurate that Larry Lamb was not the lamb led to slaughter, so to speak, um, that he was um, far more complicit in what was going on than this play makes it seem. What do I know? I wasn't there. Maybe they weren't either, but uh, they, they do indicate that was the case. So um, the veracity of this play has really been uh, doubted by um, uh, four people that I know. So uh, take that for what you will. But um, a very, very nice set, um, instead of just being a conventional office, um, Bunny Christie uh, decided to do something uh, a little more daring, and it works out very well. Tons of projections. Um, I'm not saying they're um, innovative-type projections, but you will see a lot of projections on the back um, of the wall of actual newspaper stories uh, from The Sun. And frankly, during the first act, I read a lot of them. But during the <laughs> second act... I did not. So take it as you will. All right. Uh, so 
my thought about this was exactly what uh, Peter was saying, was that, that that first act was all setting up the pins for the second act, knocking the pins down. And I had to think to myself, um, it's interesting the path of um, uh, of what Ink was uh, commenting about in the changing of of the newspaper business having to be a business, you know, as we talk about I, show business in Broadway, also having to be a business, people bemoaning the loss of art on Broadway, yet Broadway's expensive. It's got to be a business. Um, yeah. And being just over on 47th Street, just three blocks away, uh, you know, when I walk down 43rd Street and... Uh, and uh, you see Harry Potter on the 42nd Street side, and on a 43rd Street side, you see the conversion of the old New York Times building where the 18-wheelers used to drive yes. in and drive out there with uh, printed copies of the paper to distribute throughout the United to, to distribute throughout the tri-state area. Uh, used to have big, large paper trucks that would come down at 3 and 4 in the morning, driving down 43rd and 44th Street at record speeds. <laughs> and uh, uh, and that's all different. It's all changed. And this was um, a good reminder of where we've come from and how the newspaper business has had to adapt the same way that uh, many of the other media businesses and entertainment businesses have had to adapt. Um, yes, and on that note, there, one of the most fascinating parts of this play for me was the description of what it took to actually print a paper in yes, the that was, that was You know, good. that, that yeah. whole discussion of, well, first we have to do this, and then it gotta goes to... Gotta make the plate. Gotta the plate, this. yeah. You know, and, uh, and now we, you know, what do we do now? We just... You know, I mean, it's like more instantaneous compared to that. Well, you know, we only have three E's. So right, yeah, uh, we that, only have, so the headline can't have more than three E's in it. Imagine if Broadway true. ran out of exc exclamation points. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Ink is a worthwhile transfer uh, Manhattan Theater Club uh, to go see. And uh, I guess we all three agree that if you don't like Act One, stick around because Act Two gets much better. Yeah, I uh, uh, I agree with that. Act Two was was much stronger, and I'm glad that I stayed around uh, for Act Two because it was a question in my mind during intermission. I was like, "This is a rough week every night seeing a show," uh, but I'm glad I stayed for it. Yes. All right. So uh, before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts to go to front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link that way. Each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it can be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Uh, I'd also love it if you got over to Apple Podcasts and gave us a five-star rating and review because it really helps us um, find other uh, listeners who are searching us out. And giving us less than a five-star review is just... Um, petty so <laughs> i and we've had a number of listeners who continue to listen to us and email us all the time and give us you know one and two star reviews and that's just a dick move so don't do it <laughs> so uh there's many other ways if you don't want to listen to us in apple podcast and give us a bad review you can listen to us in iHeartRadio, tune in stitcher google play there's lots and lots of places where you can listen to broadway videos finer podcasts contact information for peter for michael and me can be found at the show notes of broadway radio as well as other contact information is there and links to some of the things we've talked about today so Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? 
Well, in fact, there were two answers, you may recall, because yes. um, I gave a hard question and an easy one. Let's take the easy one first. What musical has a song that spells out the letters of the alphabet, but only 25 of which are in English? And what's the song? Well, what I had in mind was the ABC song from Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, which ends with the French Z. But Tony Janicki, the first to identify that, also pointed out that the little one's ABC in Sail Away does it too right down to the Z. Deb Popple said, I think you may be thinking of the alphabet school song from Matilda, which ends with Z, but that is actually the English, although an American English, um, Z. So uh, she felt that didn't really um, jive. Uh, Josh Israel thought the same thing. Ron Fassler weighed in too. Um, but anyway, that's what I was looking for was the Stop the World song. Uh, the tough question, two famous real-life stars who were immortalized in two hit Tony losing musicals were actually roommates when they were on tour in a review. Uh, the review is very much mentioned and even homaged in a song and a scene in the later of the two musicals. Who were the star roommates, their bio musicals in the show they were in together? Well, the reason I did this is because I reread Carolyn Quinn's magnificent book called Mama Rose's Turn. She didn't want the title Mama Rose, by the way, but the editor insisted um, because Mama Rose is never mentioned in Gypsy. But anyway, Mama Rose's Turn is a magnificent biography of uh, Rose Hovick. And she mentions that at one point, Gypsy Rose Lee and Fanny Bryce were roommates uh, when they were on tour in the Ziegfeld Follies. So, wow. of course, the musical is a gypsy and funny girl. And the review that I mentioned is the Ziegfeld Follies, which is homaged in a song and scene in Funny Girl with His Love Makes Me Beautiful. So uh, um, Tony got this one, too, though I have to admit I had to give him a hint because uh, he made a, a, a wrong guess. <laughs> and I said because he thought it was uh, involved men. And I said, no, it's women. And that's when he got it anyway. Uh, this week's question. Some love songs in Broadway musicals are waltzes, like Love Makes the World Go Round from Carnival. Some are written in 4-4, Love is a Chance from Bajor. Some are charm songs, Love is a Reason from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Some are songs of fury because the love of a loved one has been done wrong, if from Two on the Isle. But one Broadway love song is actually a march, and it says so right in the lyric. What's the song, and from what show does it come? Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. I feel in the ground Yes, I feel you all around me Are you here? your mom